All right, and welcome to Rock is Bacchus. Today in the house, we got Steve, or Stephen Robinson, better known as Robbie Robinson, uh, in to talk about, we're not really sure yet, we're just going to wing it. We're going to talk about operational stress injuries, mental, uh, mental injuries, otherwise known as PTSD, and uh, how art has helped Robbie through the, uh, through the tough times of his, uh, of his recovery. And uh, first hard-hitting question there, Steve. Is it Steven or Steve? Steve. And as you know, this is a hard-punching kind of uh, uh, program. Do you hate it when the N is added to your, a- to your name? No. No? I hate it. I, I, it. it just, I, I get called Steve, Stevie, Steven, Stefan. Robbie. Every, Robbie is, uh, my parents don't even call me Robbie. They don't even know who Robbie is. <laughs> it's a military thing that just grew and grew and you know, even the seal called me up for accommodation on Parade Square. Called me Robbie. Yeah, well, he's always been Robbie to me. I, I was actually I'd forgotten what your first name was. Yeah, people right. are surprised. Too. So let's actually uh, now that we're talking it out, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Steve Robinson or Robbie? I like to be called Robbie. I was born in Bowmanville, Ontario. A uh, little bit of a farmer my whole life. So I uh, joined the military uh, at 22. Is kind of older, and uh, my drinking days and partying days were pretty much behind me uh at so, 22 yeah oh you were boy. in your prime my man <laughs> yeah i was at my prime long before that <laughs> it was the 70s woodstock you know what i mean <laughs> but uh i joined the military and uh went to the rcr battle school and the rest is history uh did a couple tours of oper- operation with three rcr and uh went Good. to the airborne regiment uh, we got disbanded, unfortunately and then carried on with my legacy over in three rcr recuperating and getting the light infantry battalion, whatever we were called back then, and never left until I was medically discharged in 2003. All right. And so what tours did you do? Uh, I did Cyprus, obviously, way back in the mid-'80s, and I did uh, three tours of uh, Yugoslavia and Bosnia. Uh, what years? Uh, let's see. The first one, 92, 93, 98, to 99, then 2000, 2001. I think there was something else in there, too, but I can't remember. 98 was in Dravar. Uh, I was in, T- I was in... Uh, Thomas Lavagrad? <laughs> no, that was in, uh, that was 2001. Yeah. Uh, we were up in Boss P at the Platoon House. <laughs> yes. I didn't want to say that too loud because, well... As I, as I recall, you guys wanted to hire a cook's helper, right? We did. We got a good cook's helper. <laughs> yes, you did. And I remember coming in, and I think it was you and one of the other boys, you said, as long as she doesn't have tuberculosis, we want her. She yeah. was some 16-year-old hottie, yeah. and she just was eye candy for the boys. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, we had the GQ squad at that, that time. No names, no pack draw, but we knew who they are. So. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> Gord, Gord made my Gordy, yeah. Guy, yeah. Oh, Gordo and uh, Chad Porter. Chad Porter, Todd yeah. Todd Holmes, yeah. It, the list just keeps going, so. Yeah. There's some Hollywood future Hall of crew. Famers right there, I'll tell you. <laughs> you were still bald at the time, so you you didn't have any uh, flamboyant hairstyle or long no, hair. No, and, and that kind of drew ire with the uh, company commander, was Dan Jakopek at the time. Yeah. So, Tommy, why you shaved your head, but uh, you're growing a beard. <laughs> and the rest is history so yeah. yeah it was something to do with the dirty water out there you know a lot about that so yes don't i uh, um as i recall so i passed the the girl her health was fine 
And uh, I think she got fired a few months later on because she was no help to the old cook at all and spent more time flirting with the boys than she did helping the old cook. Now, who was the cook out there? He was a good guy. Well, I can't remember who. He's the tall, thin guy. Yeah. and uh, But I'm talking about the, uh, the Bosnian old woman that worked there. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I can't remember her. I, she was a great cook. But yeah. she was not impressed with your choices of cook's helper. <laughs> no. I, I don't think... I think we had a lot of visitors after she got there, though. Yes, you certainly yeah, did. We, did. <laughs> we even got fresh running water. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. Uh, anyway, so that was a pretty relaxed tour. Your tour in 92, you said? Yeah. How was that one? How was... The tour in 92 in Bosnia. Uh, 92 was... That's like, when it first kicked off, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was pretty entered? much. We got there uh, about kind of relieving the Patricias, and 3RCR had already basically gone, so we were kind of the next guys, and we started off in Croatia at the airfield, Lipik. Uh, you know, it was uh, one of those tours that uh, you just you had to suck it up and carry on. It was my first introduction into how cruel humanity is to each other. Yeah. Um, and that's, that was it. It was, uh, it was very easy not to pick a side because yeah. you had no choice. Uh, and I think that was kind of the moral dilemma with a lot of us. We knew who we wanted to help a lot, but you just, you couldn't show your colors because what you did, then you became, you know, you became just as much of a victim of the war as the people in it. And that's an unfortunate thing to say. So yeah. where, where did you land Zagreb? Uh, we landed in Zagreb, a uh, nice well, firefight that night, yep. What, what was your first impressions of Zagreb? Uh, it was dark, uh, a lot of American trace arounds all over the place, uh, a lot of activity. Uh, my first impression is, if I can say this on radio, what the fuck is this shit? Um, my weapon was My under- mom might be listening to this. Yeah, my <laughs> weapon was underneath the vehicle. Yeah, The bolt was in a bolt box somewhere, and we had all the ammunition in the world, nothing to fire it with so we loaded the buses and there was no place for me to sit so i got the window seat right where you get on the bus you know the double doors yep. are open yep. that's where all the kit bags was and that's where i got and i had a first hand view of the whole damn place yeah i remember them taking our bolts for the for the weapons um we had ammo in our pockets in our pockets yeah they hadn't issued us ammo we we just were given some ammo by somebody or other at the time and uh but it was useless to us because we had we had no uh, bolts. All our weapons were in weapons bags. Bolts were in a, a bolt box, which was almost left back in country. No name, so Pactro, who forgot that? <laughs> wasn't me. What, uh, what rank were you at the time when you got there? I was Mass Corporal then. So, Mass Corporal, yeah. uh, And I was in Recce Platoon, which was, uh, yeah, good platoon. Uh, actually, Steve Whalen was my platoon commander. Oh, was he? The general. <laughs> and I'll tell you, a good man. That's a lot of respect for guys like him. So, um, Recky was Recky. I mean, we did a lot of security. We did a lot of security. We did a lot of security. Uh, but we had fun. I mean, we got to go to Macedonia, which was awesome. So, uh, that was uh, during the riots? No, uh, we went down to make sure that there was no weapons being shipped through Albania. So, yeah, that's part of the peace accord we had to pay lip service too so right. uh you did a lot of uh a lot of good stuff down there it was uh 24 and 7 it was touring but it was fun it was a presence so uh uh you learn a lot about yourself and a lot about the guys and there's not a single guy in that tour that's not one of my friends today so yeah that's uh one of those tight things you know yeah 
a shared hardship makes yeah, a strong bar- so, bond. Yeah, you know, when it, it was kind of amazing, you're up 3,000 feet above the earth and you're sharing a goat trail with a goat. Yeah. And guess who has it right away? It ain't you. It's yeah. the goat. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't really suck to look over a cliff and go, and if you don't suck the wall, you're dead. What was your first uh, contact with the belligerents? Uh, now, if you're saying where was it? No. It, it was uh, pretty much as soon as we got to the airfield in Lippic. Uh, you know, we were doing the patrols, and uh, you've seen them. Um, all of a sudden, you're, you're out on your OP, and you, you see a house being, you know, bombed, and you're like, ah, there they are. And, you know, then, then you get some brave officer comes out of the CP, take your vehicle over there and see what's going on. Yeah, I'm going to get right onto that. <laughs> so it was pretty much immediate. It wasn't, uh, there was no screw around. What uh, what area were you occupying? Uh, we had our own AOR, which is the Olympic Airfield proper. So, you know, within about five kilometers of the base itself, the camp, and <laughs> it was on the airfield. So I don't know if you ever heard about the airfield. So it was split into two quadrants, recce on one side, and as soon as you cross the tracks, it was headquarters and then min and all that on the other side so speaking of tracks you were in m113s and uh iltis iltises yeah <laughs> iltises yeah. with did you have sandbags or did you actually have blast we actually blankets? had ballistic blankets that were ballistic blankets yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh when we first had the iltis uh, yeah you know the stories about the iltis it's a canvas it's a canvas bag with plastic windows and the only thing is you know that they protected was your ball sack on the bottom with the ballistic blanket. Yeah, I described them as a Volkswagen Beetle, slightly yeah, longer, slightly exactly higher off the ground. Uh, with I've less, seen, less protective metal around you. Yeah, and I've seen, uh, you know, 7.62 rounds go in one door and follow the old roll bar up and bounce off the lantern. That's how we kept warm. Because yeah. <laughs> well, the heaters the in those things didn't work with it down. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and uh, but we never had to have a stove on because we'd take our rations and pop the old heater vents and throw your rations inside there and keep them nice and warm. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the only thing those yeah, heaters did. They, they cook rations slow, but you know what? You always had a hot meal. Yeah. Um, they sucked on... Uh, they sucked everywhere, actually. They yeah. were a very good vehicle. Uh, and then we got the M113s. Uh, my driver at the time was Johnny Logan. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Johnny was a little terrified of the roads, so were we all, because you'd get to a checkpoint. Next thing you know, you're getting, you know, roped mines slammed behind your vehicle, slammed in front of your vehicle, and you're like, oh. And were these mostly Serbians you were uh, oh, encountering? Oh, yeah, the Serbs. You know, yeah, the Serbs mm-hmm. were, they were very professional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just, you know, and it was it was hard to keep your guys on the level tone because the possibility of being obliterated in a second never failed to enter your mind or never leave it until miles after, you know. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like it didn't count. You know, yeah. you're back to being jackasses and bugging each other, you know, and just playing the games that you play in the back of a vehicle. But it, uh, it weighed heavy on a lot of guys. Yeah. And as you know, so. Did you... How did you feel the mission? Uh, you were there for six months? Seven almost. I had to stay back because of a couple guys. <laughs> a, little, a little extra money. Yeah. Um, how did you feel the mission went? Did you feel you, feel you uh, made accomplishments? or On a battalion level, I thought it went really well. Right. On a personal level, felt like I hadn't accomplished shit. What did you expect to accomplish? Uh, you you want to find that you can make a difference. Do you know what I mean? And it's... Uh, 
there just seemed like there were so many uncompleted things. Uh, nothing changed. They were still kicking the shit out of each other. Uh, I'm not a political guy. I don't get crazy over religion, but uh, it really changed my way of thinking. Uh, just, About religion? Just people in general. Just uh, and I'll, I'll be honest. One of the stories is I had met a, a sergeant who was with the Serbians, the Serb army, and he vowed to kill his brother. It was with the Bosnian army. Mm-hmm. And he was going to kill him no matter what. He had already killed his wife. And he said, I, I, he said, I butchered her and I'm going to butcher him. And I said, that's your sister-in-law, right? He goes, nah, she's a Bosnian. Jesus. And he said, when I find their kids, I'll kill them too. Yeah. I, so I'm kind of like. The hatred run, ran deep. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's, uh, I don't know if Tito ever wanted this. You know, he wanted a unified, uh, you know. Yugoslavia, but I don't think he ever and, calculated And the this. amazing part of that to me, talking to the people, it, it's not like they looked different from each other. They they all they all look the same. You know, yeah. they're uh, under Tito, the language was pretty much uniform. But after uh, Tito died and the, the union broke up, I was talking to a Slovenian girl and she said, we started making differences in the language, like a belt, I can't remember the word for belt, but... Uh, um, she said, we'd call a belt by one thing and then they would change it somewhat different. So there were, there were old, old animosities were creeping in to the extent of wanting to change the language so they didn't sound alike. And it was, it was impossible to, to look at a person and say, oh, he's Serb, he's Bosniak, he's, he's a Muslim Bosniak, he's an Orthodox Serb or whatever. It was just unbelievable hatred towards people that looked exactly like you did. And, uh, and I had the best description from a Croatian lieutenant. He said, all these tall guys, they're Croatians. I'm looking, he goes, so if you shoot anybody, shoot the little guys. <laughs> really? He goes, well, basketball players. I'm like, ah, wow. there we go. <laughs> Serbs are crazy about their basketball. Yeah, and I was kind of like, so that's how, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It was just, it was, it, but it wasn't just the religion. It was kind of the atmosphere itself. It wasn't, um, you give somebody something, and then you see him loading it up in a truck just as fast as you give it to him, yeah. just to take it somewhere else. Did you guys do a lot of drinking on that tour? No, you know it better than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I can't lie. I personally don't drink a lot. Yeah, uh, That's why uh, I left it to the good guys like Gordo and Chad and all <laughs> those guys to get the information. I just wrote it down because yeah. they got happy. So uh, was it Motel 9? Eight, so six, nine. In the platoon house, you mean? Yeah, the, the big hotel there. I keep. I think it was Motel Nine or something. Eh? Hotel Nine. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember the number, but they made a great we coffee were there quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got to know the owner pretty good. He was uh, he was a professional uh, football player, soccer player. So. Well, it was it, it was impossible to to go to anybody's place, and uh, if you offered them help, like chop wood or whatever, um, or even if you just came to say hi. The, the home, homemade Slivovica would come out, or depending on what... Uh, Raki. Yeah, Raki or uh, Lotsa, the Serbians called it. I was in Serbia and uh, had a great time with some Serbian friends of mine. Uh, but we go down a rabbit hole. Um, drinking was just part of it. So we, we went to drop off some clothes to a village, mostly baby clothes. And uh, I was a corporal at the time. And the uh, crew commander was a, was a master corporal. And we had a... Had a PA along with us, Kevin Kendall, and uh, you know Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> we get into this this Muslim house, and it's at Christmas time, 
So uh, Buddy goes, he said, I, we don't celebrate Christmas, but I know you guys do, so we've got some food and drinks for you. And Marty, the crew commander, says, oh, we can't drink. And Kevin says, you can't drink. The rest of us can have a drink. <laughs> and the driver had one drink, and that was it for him. We sat around, and it was just what was done. You know, um, you had a drink and you ate. And they never failed, no matter where you went, to offer that hospitality. And... Um, they had nothing, and sometimes you felt guilty drinking because you know yeah, they didn't absolutely. have much of that coffee or the the bread, um, but you couldn't insult them. Nope. And uh, it was, it was, it that was a, that was across the board: Serbians, Bosniaks, Muslims. Um, that 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 again, it was the same culture, the same we giving to you as little as we have, but you're here, you're our guests, and we're we're going to honor you, and. Uh, it was across the board. So not only did they look alike, but their cultures were alike. And the only real difference was the religion. Uh, the religion is, uh, that's still a hard pill to swallow because I'm not a religious person myself, but, uh, and I don't want to get into the religious side of life. Uh, it's just sometimes you just wish people would just put all the differences aside and say, <laughs> you know what, this is it. Um, and I understand some people, you know, will have that heartache. But uh, I don't, because uh, I'm allowed to have my own opinion on what I think is right and wrong. That's my opinion, so I, I rarely share it, especially when it comes to religion. Because mm-hmm. uh, I do believe in something. I have faith in something. I'm just not sure what it is. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I don't yeah. have this higher calling, but I don't deface anything either. So it's, uh, you know, you gotta you got to have faith some in something. So uh, No, you don't. But over there, it was uh, it, it, it was a, a different time. Uh, but you're absolutely right. All three sides had the same face. Yeah. And all three sides respected you if you respected them. I met some uh, Serbians while I was doing my uh, physician assistant course in, uh, in Borden. And uh, got to be quite good friends with, uh, with two of the three guys that were there. And uh, went to Serbia after the course was done and went to visit these guys. And... The one guy's a commander of an Air Force uh, base out there, so he was quite high up the chain of, chain of command. So what he was doing with me, I don't know, <laughs> but we got along <laughs> fine. And uh, he he said, where was I going with that? The same face. Same, same face. But he, oh, the religion. He said, it, it was, you guys were against us because of our religion, meaning the West. And I said, it didn't even come up in the West. Like, the only time we got a briefing about religion was the 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 wave if somebody waves two fingers at you don't wave two fingers back or three fingers because that's the orthodox side you just wave with an open palm because that's a religious symbol to them or a religious significance but never once did it come up in our news that these people are orthodox and we have to fight against them that just shit that never played into our role in uh in uh, in operations in bosnia and he found it hard to believe. And I said, it's the truth. We have, we don't care about what religion you are. To us, you were just killing each other mindlessly, and then we stepped in. Um, and he sort of changed the subject after that. But yeah, I, and, and most did, because uh, you're absolutely right. We didn't go over and say, okay, we like you because you're a Muslim. We don't like you because you're a Croat. And we definitely hate you because you serve. It was like, if you're, com- if you're participating in atrocities, you're just as guilty as... Those that are participating, those that are participating. So that's our job is to make sure you're not doing it. Yeah, in, in uh, 90, 98, is that when we were in Dravar? 98, yeah. Yeah, I think we were in Dravar in 98. I had a Croatian guy who was part of uh, uh, Croatian recce during the war. 
And uh, he come up to me one time, good guy, like one of one of our best interpreters, solid guy, good natured, serious. He's a very serious individual. And uh, he comes to me one day and he says, uh, Steve, uh, I need some clean needles. What do you mean you need clean needles? And uh, he says, well, I use heroin when I go back, uh, back home. I said, what the fuck? You know, do you, oh, <laughs> this, this sort of overwhelmed me. He said, I, I take it to escape. And uh, we got talking and he told me some of the atrocities that he saw committed and participated in committing. And uh, every, everything from burning people alive to just executing old people for the fuck of the fact that they were Serbian or not, not Croatian. Anyway, he said, I can't, I can't get needles um, at home. And if I share needles, I risk uh, getting infection or getting infected with AIDS. And these guys had no, no psychological help. They didn't have psychologists or psychiatrists that were easily uh, accessible. And uh, so what do you do? Do you tell them no? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have. I didn't. I ended up giving them the needles. I hope I can't get uh, still charged for that. Um, but I thought, you know, it's going to go downhill, but he's not using with us. And I, I asked everybody he went out with, you know, what's he like? And they said, he's fine. Like, we have no issues with him. Um, so that was, that was a tough call to make. Yeah, it would be tough. And, and it's a hard position to be because, thank God I'm a methodical thinker and I react instinctively being trained sometimes you would you react so quick that you know it could have catastrophic results right um, I'm a I'm a very relaxed guy always have been uh, when things hit me pretty hard though it's it's the survival mode that goes in effect first these are your rules this is what you do boom and you you don't create a moral dilemma until you're you're gone you know what I mean yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like you're reacting to the next one, the next one, and the next one. So after about six months of doing this, reacting to the next dilemma that comes up, you kind of, you pick your survival mode that works. And that was the one that I picked was, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing to learn here. Uh, there's nothing to take from here. Uh, but it is an equal training ground to become a better soldier. Like, And, and some guys didn't realize that. They were like, wow, that's that's pretty hardcore there, Sarge. Like, that's what you're taking from here. And I remember taking the guys out on a patrol, and we sat in the middle of the town. <clears throat> I said, okay, we got 20 minutes. Get out your get out your paper, your books. Write down what you see. <laughs> they were kind of looking at me going, what? Write down what you see. So they're all writing down. Some guys weren't writing anything. But meanwhile, in 20 minutes, I had written almost a book. So I said, okay, this is what I saw. And I didn't even need to look. I said, so we're sitting in a village. This village is supposed to be doomed. I said, every single one of them has hydro running to their house. Every single one of them has a front yard. Every single one of them has a curb. And they're like, what do you mean? Take a look at the curbs. Do you see any bullet holes? Do you see any pock marks? They all been have the, re the infrastructure has been redone in this little wee village. And then the guys are like, I said, you know, and this went on for about 20 minutes. I said, so how much help are we giving these people? And the guys were like, I said, so don't fall in love with this place. Don't become the first guy that says, oh, I really want to help this person. 
those people that need help, they're going to come to you. Mm-hmm. I said, we're going to go to these people. And I said, I'm not trying to say what we're doing here as a unit is right or wrong. We're doing what we're told to do. I said, but just be careful about getting too attached. And, and guys were becoming attached. You knew that as well yeah. as I do. And uh, one guy is like, well, my wife and I want to send windows to this village. I said, it's not going to work. Yeah. You can't do that. You've, unfortunately, you've got to turn this sort of survival eye and... Well, if you're giving to one, you got to be able to give to everybody. It's and, like the Doritos commercial, you know? If I give one to you, with the yeah. Inuits out there, two guys, if I give one to you, i got to give one to everybody else. And, that's, and that was my whole point with these guys, was this is a valuable training venue, period. You're going to become a better person, a better soldier by being here. You just may not become a better person. Yeah. Uh, that will come with how you go home with this. And that's... That's kind of where my injury started. Nothing was really bothering me in theater mm-hmm. until you get that calm. Until you get home and think about then it. And all of a sudden it's like, I don't want to get up and shut the light off. I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? And it just became, you know, it just became robotic. Did that build over your, you did three tours of Bosnia? Yeah. Did that build over your three tours? or No, the 98 it? and 2001, seriously, it was like, where's the caviar? Yeah. Uh, yes, there was incidences, I mean, but those were incidents where we were trained. Uh, you remember we were a pair of company down in Thomas Lavagrad. We took over the bank, but that's what our job was. Yeah. We went out there. There was a whole company. All our weapons were bared. Like, we actually were ready for a fight. Yeah. And I wasn't afraid because that's what I had trained to. And it sounds stupid. I know guys were, like, pretty nervous. Nah, just this is what you're trained to do. Yeah. The instincts are going to kick in. Uh, when we took over the containment site, lead vehicle, going crashing through the gate. I had no idea it was on the other side, but we had Dave Dunn with us. Yeah. So I wasn't afraid. You know what I mean? But that's what you trained for. You yeah. went in, everybody had a job, and there was no way fans or butts. Somebody well, raised a weapon, they're gone. Yeah, I remember the Croatians, after the Dayton Accord had been signed, the Croatians decided to move their border post. I yeah. don't know, were you in on that one? Oh, yeah. With Wayne... Uh, um, How... No, uh, I'm thinking about uh, Warrant, uh, Gil- not Gallant, uh, Mark, Mark Godfrey. Oh, Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I remember we rolled up on the position at three in the morning or something. Yep. Spotlights came flat, c- come on and the 50 cals got charged. And the sound of all that, all those weapons being readied must have fucked up those guys inside the shack because they, they came out with their hands up. And uh, somebody had stolen the flag off the, uh, the fence, the Croatian flag, as you recall. And uh, what fence? They, yeah, what fence? <laughs> so they moved their their guard post back, and things were pretty tense there for a bit. And then one of their diplomats or one of their higher ranking officers came around and said, or one of ours came over and said, "Look, there was a f- national flag flying on their fence or their pole or whatever the hell it was. I don't remember. I think it was on the fence, and uh, they wanted back, or there's going to be issues." Everybody's going, "Well, we don't know anything about a flag." And Buddy goes, no, seriously, they want that flag back. So it reappeared somehow. Somebody must have got one from the QM. <laughs> <laughs> knitted one, yeah. <laughs> yeah knitted one the, the same QM. one. Yeah. And uh, they got, but it was, it was just little incidents like that, um, which I guess is what you're saying has led to uh, your your mental injury. Your, your yeah, stress. it's just, uh, um, there's not a lot, and I have a very good doctor. Uh, Larry's a good guy. I've been with him for quite a while. Um, 
it's not so much trying to cure PTSD or trying to, you know, redevelop it or put you in a position where you have to relive it every day. Um, we've been more or less working on the moral injury when mm-hmm. it comes to it. And a lot of people are going, uh, And what do you mean by moral injury? There's a moral side to have PTSD. Uh, morals are things that are outside of your, outside of your control. We go into a place, we're locked, we're loaded, we're trained. Uh, you see some woman, you know, being abused and stuff. You don't intervene. You know, you tell them to stop. And if they look and say. But it's within your moral framework yeah, to intervene. It is. Want to However, if you breach the rules of engagement, not only are you endangering your life, but the life of all the other seven guys with you. So thank God for that survival mode. And that yeah. survival mode is, this is what you're trained to do. If that guy tells you to fuck off, too bad. Yeah, make a report, you call the cops, that's all you can do. It, it sucks. I mean, that's where the moral dilemmas were built for me because you yeah, see this. The rules of engagement were very... <laughs> they weren't in our favor. No, they weren't. They were very <laughs> narrow. And the Serbs in particular, I don't want to blame the Serbs, but the the Serbs in particular were very good at knowing what our rules of engagement were. And uh, they would take it right to those limits. Yep. Um, now you could shoot at me. But the minute you started to run away, or he, the shooter started to run away, you could no longer engage him. Yeah. However, <laughs> if you stole the jerry can full of gas off the back of my vehicle, I could shoot you. Yeah. Seriously. You <laughs> uh, also uh, it, that. So you're, 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 if I understand you right, you're saying frequent frequent occurrences that um, that insulted your your morals. Oh, absolutely. Uh, caused, you, caused you some strain. Yeah, and there was a few what that just didn't make sense to me. Uh, you know, you, it's, and this is just one thing in general. Uh, we, were, we were on a patrol into Sarajevo, and you crossed the river. And I just happened to look outside the carrier, and I seen this car sort of bouncing in the water. It's, it wasn't really rough water, but you, you see the water cresting. And I seen something bouncing you know, inside the car. Oh, good. Uh, so I you never really paid attention until you get over the bridge and all of a sudden you're kind of looking back and, you know, there you just see, you know, a, a pregnant woman. I'm hoping, praying that that's what it was or it was just a bloated body that was yeah. inside the field. Yeah. And you're just, you know, and then you drive five feet down the road and they're fishing. I, I'm like, can't you just go get that? you know, the person out of the vehicle, uh, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, I, you, you know what it's like, you're, you're sitting there, you're going, okay, if they go to the vehicle, it could be booby trap, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Then all of a sudden you, it, you wash it away. And then, you know, six months later, it comes back and hits you. You're like, what would I have done? Yeah. So there's that. Or inc- what, there's that what inc- should inc- I have done? Feeling yeah. of, wow, you know what? But, uh, I, I, you know, as my doc says, you can't go back and revisit it and come up with a solution. It's already done. So so when when did you uh, when did you realize you were suffering from some sort of mental injury? Did pretty much as soon and as I'll I, call it PTSD because yeah. to differentiate a mental injury, the reason I use mental injury is a because a psychologist friend of mine, Frank, um, mentioned it to me and it made a lot of sense. Everybody's had an injury. Um, we all know that it takes time to recover from an injury. So when you when you when you say a mental injury to describe PTSD or OSI or something like that, yeah. rather than rather than seeing something that's fucking a guy up or messing up his mind, you understand that he has some sort of injury that he needs to work through, 
Absolutely. Where, where PTSD seems to be something that you're never going to uh, conquer. And and maybe we won't, but we ca- we keep on coming up with uh, ways of of improving a person's uh, situation with a mental injury or how to deal with it. In your case, how did you end up dealing with uh, mental injuries? What did you uh what did you try? Uh, well, the first thing I thought would really help was just getting away from everything, hiding, right? But still functioning at a level where people couldn't read, you know, the big mattress sign on my forehead. So you know, I was kind of hiding in everything, and then I was like, "You're not fooling anybody." I mean, if you can't positively lead your troops, you shouldn't be here. And so well, that's what, when what, I realized I had I needed help. What were the indicators? Ah, uh, just. Just didn't want to be there. Did not want to be there. Uh, now, I'm not going to sit there and say... Did I, that carry I on over to home? Uh, it was kind of like when I came home after 90, uh, 2001 is where everything just sort of came into a head. Um, I just wasn't... Uh, well, you, you've you known me for years. Always smiling, always a good guy. Uh, somebody said something to me that just stuck in my head. And I challenged it. And it was the first time in my career that I actually challenged something that a, a leader had said to me. And they kind of looked at me and went, what? I went, no. And so as soon as I challenged that that one thing that, you know, incited my injury more, I knew... I, I, don't, I don't understand what you somebody mean. Somebody told me, suck it up. Okay. Kind of, you know, when, when you, don't get emotional. You were, you were in a mood or you were carrying I, out a task or what happened? I was, uh, I'll make a long story short. I was going through something with my ex-wife. Right. And uh, I was not happy with it. I mean, I was looking, I was looking at doing time because false allegations and shit. I don't want to get into the legalities of it. Then somebody said, don't get emotional. And I said, who the fuck are you to tell me not to get emotional? Well, no, it's, I said, no, I'm done. Uh, it cracked. It just, it opened up that imaginary vase, you know, that... Safe? Yeah, and it, it just, it exploded. And I said, I'm fucking getting emotional because I, you know what I mean? And it was, and that's kind of, and a blessing was, you know, my road to recovery was actually saying to myself, yeah, get emotional. Uh, you, you can't be a robot your whole life. You can't, you can't shelter all this, you, you can't all these feelings pushing you have down. inside. So that's where I went. So you were you were pushing down emotions that oh, yeah were you were you aware at the time what was causing these um, oh shit yeah I mean when I got back from our first tour I was in Gagetown and uh, I volunteered to stay out in the field as often as I could and my CO at the time very good guy his name was Colonel Russell he was my old OC in uh, Germany this this Clyde isn't when you were living with your current wife ex. right? This is the ex-wife. Yeah, the ex. yeah. So I just wanted just to stay away. I didn't want to be part of anything. So I volunteered to be out in the field. And the guys were like, what are you doing? I said, I've got shit to do. Yeah. And I, I trained hard just to stay out in the field. I took on courses. I did this. I did it. just didn't want to be home. And Colonel Russell came up to me and said, what are you doing? So I'm finishing this course. And he goes, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to put you on a jump course. And he said, when the jump course is over, you're going to the regiment. He says, you need out of here. I don't know if he knew, but there was something that just kind of made him look my way. And he just, you know, I, I never forgot that. I appreciated the fact. So uh, I trained harder to, 
get to shit kicked out of me in Edmonton, and I never went back. I left Gagetown, came to Petawawa, and haven't left. So, uh, I had I had to fight this feeling of emptiness. Uh, before the CO actually approached me, I never would have said I was going to jump out of an airplane. Yeah, not even in your remote wildest dreams. I hate heights. I'm claustrophobic. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what do you do? You jump out of an airplane. Yep. Uh, and uh, I figured if I could conquer that fear, then everything would just kind of go away. So when were you actually diagnosed? Uh, February of 2002. Really? Yeah. So actually 2003, sorry. February 2003. And when did you release? Um, in October 2003. Yeah, so and it didn't take long. So you didn't stay within the military mm-hmm. system. You didn't. You didn't really get any treatment within the military system. Not really. I mean, I went. To, uh, Steve Goupil. Yeah, was the first guy I ever went to. I met actually. Uh, you were in the office, and uh, I didn't want to talk to you because you knew me. <laughs> but so did Steve. But we had no uh, mo at the time. Right. And so I talked to Steve. And then Steve sent me over here. They sent me over there. They sent me over there. And I said, "See you later." Yeah. I'm done being sent everywhere. And that's yeah. not Steve Goodbill. He's a good guy. He's yeah. A very, very fine gentleman. I uh, just said, okay, I'm done sharing my story with everybody. See you later. So what What was your next step when you got out on the Civvy Street? Uh, if it wasn't, well, I met Michelle uh, before that. So Michelle. Uh, your current wife. Yeah. That's the love of my life. She sorted me out left, right, and center. So she actually challenged me to be the human. That yeah. I wanted to be in the military, mm-hmm. and some people don't understand what that means. But to challenge you, you know, to be human, yeah, doesn't mean go out and read the Bible. Doesn't mean go out and start a rock and roll band. It just means do little things in life that you know that make a difference in people's lives. You know, clean the kitchen, make a meal, take the kids to school. You know, get involved in other things that aren't mission orientated. So that's what I did. Uh, so as the years went by, I sat there in front of my computer and. The, the artistic part of my life started there was a good well I recall mind. you drew and whatnot. you you doodled while you were uh... I was doodling but I wasn't you know I was kind of I think everybody thought I was creative because I started doing uh, address return labels for the troops yeah they'll put in a set of wings yeah I remember that yeah yeah so uh, guys were like, yeah, that's I probably still smart. have some you in did the box, you yeah. did uh, so the guys were that's pretty smart you know what I mean and it was kind of like I always had that sort of part of my life that I just wanted to create something and just to give somebody a smile on their face. Well, so did you actually take, uh, did you see uh, a, uh, somebody reference art therapy? Nope. What I saw was some guy that we know very, very well said, I'm a proud guy to the Airborne Regiment, put up this Airborne cat badge, but I couldn't make it out because it was so pixelated. I right. was like, man, you got to have some pride in yourself, man. So, you know, I downloaded this thing called GIMP and I started redoing the cat badge and I sent it to him and he was the happiest guy in the world he goes fuck man where'd you do that I said oh, I just made it on this and blah 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 and that went on for a few years my wife said listen dummy instead of sitting here on the you know on your computer all day why don't you just go back to school I went where she goes I'm pretty sure you figured out so I checked for you know, online courses because I knew I couldn't go back into a classroom environment. And lo and behold, I found the Toronto Film School and got into graphics department, and we're flying today. Yeah, you definitely uh, put it in the plug while we're thinking about it for your uh, <laughs> Army Guy Graphics. <laughs> Ar- Army I'm Guy on Graphics. Facebook. I'm on Facebook, yeah. And that's all, all one, uh, one run together. Army word. Guy Graphics, yep. Yeah. You will find me on Facebook. And your mug po- pops up? 
Oh, yes, it'll come up and it'll see my little jump picture underneath it. And Don't be alarmed, folks. He's really not that hideous. He's quite jovial looking. I'm actually a, a, a fine human. <laughs> <laughs> but it's. Uh, if it's I was op- a woman, I'd do you. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> it's open the doors uh, and um, it's, it's nice to give back. Um, you know, when you're medically released, you always feel this, man, why me? Like, sons of bitches, they were out to get me. They hunted me down. They killed me, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's quite a unique environment we live in. Um, when you put yourself in their shoes, and I mean the leadership's shoes, and you ask yourself, huh, if I was his rank, what would I have done? Yeah. Uh, I never did that as a, as a young guy or as a senior NCO. I didn't look at somebody above me and go, what would I do if I was in his shoes? First thing you'd say is, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Uh, but when you, you get a time to reflect, and that's, that's the big key about any mental illness or injury. You need to reflect, and you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of others. To you be still mindful. be the same person you are, but it gives you a different perspective because not every decision is going to be made about you. It's the bigger picture. No, as my wife says, it's not all about me. Yeah, um, and you know what? There's a huge picture, and uh, I'll let you know, I would hate to be a chief warrant officer in any battalion and go over on tour and lose seven guys and have to come home. Yeah. And, you know, and then hear the stories around going, ah, that fucker could have done this. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, well, one, of, one of the guys, and I'm sure you'll agree when I mention his name, that that conversation has happened so often about is General Dallaire. Yeah, and absolutely. I whether Whether or not he was made the right decision, made the wrong decision, made the decision based on good int, bad int, whatever, his, he made a decision. And now it turned out horrible for, for the uh, Belgians. Yeah. Um, but that's something he's got to carry with him now. And boy, I, I could never. And I mean, to, like you say, now put yourself in his shoes. What do you do? Do you have the, do you have the uh, manpower to go in and attack the, these guys and, and rescue the Belgians? You know, I, I don't know the situation. I read his book. I, I was quite uh, pleased I was in the uh, Toronto airport having a meal and a beer, and he sat down across from me, and I walked up to him and introduced myself and sat there and had the rest of my lunch and a beer with him. Um, but he seems so genuine and such a, a decent human being just talking to him. That's the key right there. We're all human beings. Yeah. And as soon as you put we are in error. on it... Yeah, you're no longer a human being if you put a label on another guy for making the decision. Yeah, uh, I remember as a, a young mass corporal, I got bored. I got bored very quickly in Germany. Uh, I was sent out to do a patrol, and I said, "Fuck it, I ain't doing this shit anymore." I walked right up the road. Oh, we caught you! Good for you. Let's turn around. Let's go home. And you know, the OC said, "Did you get caught?" Nope. Yeah, it turned out I got caught. <laughs> I got my five extras. Yeah. Uh, but I never reflected on it until years later and went, you know what? Yeah, you got bored. But it wasn't much of a learning staple for the other fucking five guys in the patrol that just looked at you and said, you're an idiot. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if any of them are listening, I apologize for that. But <laughs> you know who you are. Yeah, oh, they definitely know who they are. Uh, you know, you, you've got to own it. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you own it, I think there's a, a huge release. It helps, uh, but it also 
goes back to what I just said a couple of minutes ago. It allows you to be human. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never, ever in our 20 years existence wearing combats ever got to be human. Myself, I shouldn't say about you because I've seen some of the stuff you had to do. You, you had to become sign of human to do some of the shit you did. Uh, <laughs> I was once described as a heartless bastard who didn't have any empathy or sympathy. <laughs> there you go. That's the better humor you're going to get. But you know what I mean? It's uh, you got to reflect, and that's the biggest thing about uh, taking on something that's bigger than you. And that's why I went to school. It's, it's bigger than me. And yeah. it wasn't about me. Uh, I met some phenomenal people while I was on, on that course. Uh, and I met some people I'll never talk to again. I mean, but that's just how it is. But I learned through that course that, uh, man, civilian life is nowhere near this regimented, vile, you know, ego, you know, life that you live. It, it's, that's, you know, you can do all that in the military. You can get away with it. Uh, you can't do that in Civi Street. It, doesn't work. People don't. They don't respect that value. They want somebody who, and I'm going to say it in my in my world of being an artist, they don't want somebody who's General George Patton. No, they want somebody who's quite capable of understanding that pink is not just a color. You know what I mean? And I have a hard time with that one myself at times. But uh, you know, I it's. What what do you mean? Because there's a bunch of people going, what the fuck did he just say about pink? What do you mean pink is not just a color? In the artistic world, and please, fellow artists, don't take this the wrong way, there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes, baggage with, color. That comes with being an artist. I mean, I thought I had a lot of emotion after the military, but it, it's so nice to understand that, man, I only touched on the emotions that it takes to be somebody who's creative. You have to have a little bit of flamboyance. You have to have a little bit of out there. Uh, You've got to have empathy. You've got to have everything to be a good artist. Because if you don't, then you're just going to draw stick, man, and people are going to go. You have to be able to put some kind of passion into it. And that's that's why I'm glad I took that role. uh, I I would say... I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've known you well over the years, but I've known you. Yeah, like not in the biblical sense, but yeah, <laughs> uh, we we've we we've, we've shared the same ration packs. We've yep. you know, sucked in the same dirt and rolled in the same mud, and uh, you 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 were always one of those guys who who would step up and help out. You yep. might have been a crusty, miserable bastard, <laughs> which occasionally you were a crusty, miserable bastard. Never towards me. Um, but you, you always had those, those, um, those traits there. Yeah. You just didn't put them into practice maybe as you're doing now. Yeah. And it's, and, and there's that fine line is I didn't, I've never liked bullies. I hate bullies with a passion. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of prayed that I would have been preyed upon in a unit by a bully, but I'm not a small guy, so it never really Never came, came out up. a lot, uh, and when it did, it was over pretty quickly. Uh, I never, I never backed away from a lot of people. Now, there's guys that I respect, like uh, my buddy Dave Dunn. Like, there's a guy you respect because you know Dave is Dave. He's got a uh, he's got a cement fist, he, and he does. But he's also when you get to know guys like Dave, got a heart of gold, man. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so they, you know, you, you kind of pick this persona about yourself, and that's what I loved about being in the military. Yesterday, I could have been a newfie. 
You know, tomorrow I could be from Saskatchewan or, you know, you you know what I mean? You can pick up so many things about the guys you work with that you can fit in and nobody, nobody bugs you. They accept you for who you are. So, uh, that's, we we might've got off track, might've got off track somewhat. Yep. Um, so no formal art therapy, so so to speak. You you just sort of got drawn into yep. the artistic side of yourself. Something caught your attention. You said, "I'm going to do do graphics." Yeah. Well, what started it was and, wasn't even a fact. Well, hang on, hang on one second. Yeah. I'm not done. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> I don't want to lose my train of thought on this, but I won't. I derailed my own train of thought here ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> Went off in a whole new direction. Um, fuck! There goes my derail train again um you 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 took you realized that you were interested in art and you took it now how did that help you escape your mental injury and that that there is exactly the whole purpose of this by taking art i was allowed to express my deepest emotional wants desires hates loves whatever through my work yeah uh my first love, and always has been, was writing. I love writing. Always have, always will. Uh, and I just wanted to be able to put my writing to some kind of graphic ability. So I could write a poem and put it on some kind of you know background and say, these are my words. And when you read them, you're drawn in by the emotion that the graphic area has on it. Uh, so that was kind of the basics of it. But now as I'm getting better at the artwork, because I still got a long way to go, uh, I'm able to express myself, you know, my wants and desires through your wants and desires. Hence the little jumper there in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I started that because I realized, you know, we're not getting any younger. Our numbers are few and few. Mm-hmm. But man, we can still be proud until our dying days. Yeah. So that's kind of where the graphic idea came. So... I know a lot of guys go, do you do anything else other than airborne? No, not really. Not yet. I, it's coming. Uh, it's about inventory. It, it's, it's, well, it's, exactly. You're also making a living here. Yeah. So you're, you're doing what you're, you're being a whore. You're, you're yep. putting yourself out there. And <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to make a living, but it's nice. It's uh, since I started this, uh, my biggest fear with the mental illness or the mental injury was never, ever being heard. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing worse in life than suffocating yourself while other people watch you and don't even give a shit. Well, they often don't know, Robbie. No, they don't. They just kind of go, I'm glad it's him and not me. Uh, so, yeah, but even if they think that far, like I've, I've mentioned this to a couple of people myself already. I mean, I'm a, was a medical professional and I use the term professional loosely. Um, I, I had friends who were suffering through through um, mental injuries, you know, PTSD, OSI, whatever you want to call it, and I didn't pick up on it. Whereas, you know, a guy like you from the, comes walking in off the street, starts talking to me, and I'll, I can I can say, oh yeah, well here's what's going on. But sometimes you're too close to people, you yep. know, and you realize something's not right. But you think, well, they're having an off day, or maybe it's something I did to irritate them, or whatever. Um, I, I was often surprised that I didn't pick it up as soon as I should have with people that I know and care about, and it, it was just not um, 
it, it was just simply amazing to me that I, I missed it somehow. And that's and that's uh, the glorious thing about wearing camouflage. We're all the same. Can't yeah. hide. <laughs> uh, that's that's how I put it down. Is uh, hey, we're all wearing camouflage. Nobody's going to find out that you're sick or injured if you don't tell them. Right. And as soon as you do, well, your camouflage becomes less and less, and pretty soon you're that little that little tick in the box that everybody recognizes and yeah. avoids. Well, part of the problem problem with being an army dink is. What do we do when we get together with a bunch of other army dinks? We drink and party. Yep. And you drink too hard. So you don't notice um, somebody who is drinking more than they usually would because you're drinking with them. Yep. You know? So you don't have that distance. Where I think is, I, I guess I just made a realization myself. <laughs> 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 Mom, I've made a breakthrough here. Um, uh, you don't notice it because you are too close to them. Uh, whereas if you have a certain professional distance from somebody, you can say, you know, you're drinking at two, four every every night. Maybe there's something going on here. I mean, if you're 21 and drinking at two, four over the weekend, Friday and Saturday, you're, you drank two, two, fours. Well, is that age appropriate? Well, maybe they're drinking a little too hard. But if you're 32 years old and drinking at two, four Friday and Saturday, you're probably having an issue, you know. So, and and you're right. We can't pick it out because yeah. uh, nobody's going to volunteer it. Yeah, and, and then when they do find out, they hit you hard. And you're so immersed in it yourself that you you don't notice it. Yeah, and it's uh, and that's kind of you know that's why my injury was kind of hidden. I didn't really care about it. Yeah. I found other ways to avoid it. Jumping through airplanes, you know. 39 years old doing Pathfinder follow-on missions. Like, seriously? What kind of moron does that twice? You know what I mean? And just, uh, but I just tested myself, and I I enjoyed that. Uh, And I like being surrounded by the young guys because then I realized, holy fuck, you're like 20 years older. Most of these guys, no wonder they're laughing at you on BT. But now I'm laughing at them because they're my age now going, holy (laughs) shit, man, I can't do BT anymore. So So, so to sum up a little bit, Um, we talked about a whole lot of stuff here. Well, we can wrap up the, how art has influenced my life. How, how has art influenced your life? It's given me a new focus. Uh, I'm going to be honest. It's, uh, it's kind of focus that I want. It's confusing at times because I got to learn. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's we keeping accept, your mind sharp. But we, ex- we excel at, uh, challenges. Uh, like I was telling you earlier about, you know, I got to make sure all my, my facts are all dotted down on paperwork. I remember who's getting orders, who isn't getting orders, who I got to report to, who gets this, who gets that. It's a different learning curve, but it's uh, I'm not alone in that learning curve. In the military, you can put yourself as being alone in what you do. Yeah. Uh, but here you can't. You've got to you've got to compete. And uh, I look forward to getting up every day and doing something new. Um, Prostituting yourself, eh? Prostituting yourself for the yeah. I mean, the uh, almighty dollar. I, I got called up by a, a certain organization there on Saturday, and they asked me out of the blue, nowhere, I can't say who they are until they authorize the graphics, yeah. uh, if I could do something for them. I said, well, what do you want? And he said, do it. So I did it all day Saturday and uh, finished it up Sunday, and uh, it meant a lot to me because it wasn't something that I'm used to. Yeah, uh, It's something that's totally out of my my league. 
but the bottom line is art reaches everybody and it has it has its own sensitivity towards yeah. those, those who view it. And so I've learned a lot about myself. And may I say, you do some bang-up work. Um, I think all the pieces I've seen uh, that you've done are, are excellent pieces. And give yourself a plug again. Armaga Graphics. Yeah. Um, com. My, my website's coming up soon. I hate doing web pages, by the way. So one, one question for you. Yeah. Would you join somebody, would you tell somebody else to join the military? Or yes. would you say join the military? I Why? would say join the military. Uh, the military isn't just all about going out and loading weapons and killing people. It's, it's a society within society itself. Gives you a chance to grow. Gives you a chance to experience life skills. Uh, but we're hopefully a smarter world today where you can actually get help along the way. You don't, you know, I'm not saying we're going to go out and coddle you. You're still going to be treated rough. You still have to be a soldier. You still have to make decisions. But, you know, you're more educated. It doesn't mean grade 12 today is different than grade 12 yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just means we're a new world. You you just got to get out and enjoy it. I mean. Well, how many privates have you met over the years who have a degree and they decide to join the infantry? I'd say 90% that were in my section. A good chunk of them. Yeah. And yeah, you had nothing, a smart section. I don't know how you ever survived them. I, well, you know why? <laughs> <laughs> There's ways to survive smart people. But no, I would never tell somebody not to join the military. And it's not because I was medically released. Everybody is their own footprint, their own blueprint. You will survive no matter where you're at. So the military is a good place. I, yeah. I enjoy it. I have no bad feelings about the military. My days are blaming them for what happened to me. They're long gone. I mean, well you, well, you found a new focus. Yeah. And a new life and, yeah. and you're happy with it. And you don't have to say I'm done. You know what I mean? No, because there's always more ahead of you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm learning every day. I mean, I, you know, they just asked me if I wanted to do my bachelor's in art. Yeah. I, that's, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's another day, another dollar. Well, all right then, Robbie. I guess uh, we'll wrap it up with that. Um, thanks for coming out. Oh, I appreciate it. I Considering appreciate we it. had no idea what we were going to talk about today, and I think we did all right. I think we winged her pretty good. <laughs> we definitely winged her. Uh, so I'd like to say thanks thanks again to you, Robbie. Uh, thanks thanks for my new jumper for my uh, laptop here. Yep. Um, and best of luck to you in the business. I know it's doing well. I hope it continues to do well. Me too. And... Um, I'm going to have to get a hold of Mark Godfrey. No, that's, that, that's all, all done. Um, so thanks again to you yeah. for showing up and telling a bit about your story. And, uh, that's the way it's always been. Yeah. And uh, thanks to you all out there who are listening to Rock is Bacchus. Um, I hope you're enjoying it. And I hope we continue to put stuff out there. So live life now because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And uh, be kind to each other out there. Amen to that. Hoo-wah. Hoo-wah.